So as we take up this second section, there are, there are three main thoughts that we are going to be looking at as we open this up, and that is the, the idea of wait, witness, and watch. And you're going to see how these things flow out of this very passage. And I want to start there in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Jesus says this to his apostles while still uh, waiting there. And before he has ascended, he says this in verse 4. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. Further, at the end of verse 5, he says, but the, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tells them to wait. Jesus is right now, in, in moments in this context, he is going to ascend to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, and he tells the, the apostles, wait. And, and this is my question to you. Why wait? Why did the Spirit not come as Jesus ascended? Why is there this delay? Now, if, you're, if you like to do the math and, and work things out, uh, Jesus, remember, had observed the Passover with his disciples. And that, that it was in the Passover that he was, he was railroaded into, into this um, uh, uh, false accusations against him. He, he was then judged to ultimately be crucified. And we have between Passover, or really between the day after Passover and the beginning of what's called the Feast of Weeks, sometimes also known as the Feast of First Fruits, it's one of those three times a year that all the males were to gather to Jerusalem. It, it, it's during that time that really the way that it's stated in the Old Testament is uh, there is a week of weeks. Now, your translations won't generally say that. It will, it will, it will be easier for us. It will say seven weeks which is 49 days. There will be a week of weeks from the day after, which is 49 days. And then there's one more day. If you count two Passover, it's 50 days, which is why this was called the day of Pentecost. Now, some of you, if you ever search the scriptures and you start saying, well, let me see when, when this idea of Pentecost began and you start going through your Old Testament, are you going to find it in there? You're not, because Pentecost comes to us from a Greek word, which, which is a Greek word for 50. And so you won't find that there was, and the Jews did not observe in their own mind what they observed wasn't Pentecost. So in Acts chapter 1, it's giving us a description that on the day of Pentecost, which means on the 50th day that came, more literally. Because we get caught up in certain traditions in, in our modern sense, and we think, ah, oh, yeah, the Jews always would gather on the day of Pentecost, the Jews knew nothing of the day of Pentecost under that term. 
because they were not Greeks. And, the, and Greek was still not the prevailing language of Jerusalem which was primarily still Jewish in its influence. And so they re would refer to it for them. It was the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits, or some could even say the Feast of the Harvest. So, but what you basically have happening here is when Jesus is ascending, they are going to have to wait ultimately about seven days between the time that Jesus ascends and the time that they receive the Spirit. But what, what, what's interesting is this. When Jesus tells them to wait, he does not tell them how long. Now, personally, I would have liked to have known that. Now, there were, there were times that God was pleased with re regard to certain judgments to tell them exactly to the year how long it's going to be remember under the babylonian exile they would be in exile in babylonia for 70 years daniel would find that out in reading the prophet jeremiah and he'd discover ah oh, it's going to be 70 years then again the lord's going to bring us back here they're told to wait in jerusalem not many days now, when we start to look at that, you think, well, what does that mean and how long that's going to be? Because sometimes we look in the scriptures as you come down to uh, 2 Corinthians, or I mean 2 Peter chapter 3, and we're told that we are to wait, we're waiting for the coming of the Lord, and some say, well, why is he delayed? He's not coming again. Why is he so slow in coming? And the scripture reminds us there what? Ah, the Lord does not count slowness as you count slowness. S slowness, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, where we think, it's been so long, Jesus ascended, and he will be coming again, and we're waiting. And a lot of us, as we start to do the work on that, so 30, 33 AD, Jesus ascended. So we're coming up on 2,000 years. You know, and as you start reading through the book of Revelation, Revelation, it says, the time is at hand. He's coming quickly. You think, yes, great. But it's been 2,000 years almost. Does that feel like a long time? But when we understand it from the perspective of an eternal God working out his perfect purposes, it's effectively still less than, still under two days. So we've got to understand this. So he could have, he told them not many days. But that doesn't mean anything to them. They have no idea how long they're going to have to stay there and how long they're going to have to wait. And as he said that, we had no idea. They had no idea. And, and here's, here's the reality that I, that I want to just share with you. God does not tell us everything we want to know. What he tells us he tells us, so that we will know it. What he doesn't tell us, we don't need to know. A lot of people get all whipped up at the possibility of getting 
extra information that they can't find in their scriptures that some individual can declare to them that nobody else could find. Remind you of those beautiful words in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, where God, in speaking to the children of Israel, there says to them, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the revealed things belong to us and to our children in order that we may do them or obey them. The secret things belong to God, and here again, it's kind of secret. They don't know how long it's going to be, but they have got to wait. It's interesting, if you were to look it up, and, and I'll just I'll tell you about it, in 1 Samuel chapter 13, there was a, Saul was gathering together uh, the children of Israel to go to battle, and Samuel had told him, I will come. And I will meet you in seven days. Now, this might, seven days might sound familiar at this point because I've told you it's about seven days from the ascension of Christ until the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Samuel told Saul, I'll meet you in seven days. At that point, Samuel was going to offer a sacrifice of worship, a, a sign of commitment of the people before they go to war. On the seventh day, as the seventh day began, people were starting to feel like, well, this is taking too long. They began to scatter in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And so all of a sudden, you know what Saul did? Oh no, we gotta go, we gotta go to battle before everybody leaves. Gather together, and he himself did the sacrifice. Now I ask you this. Was sacrificing the role of the king? No, there were specific men who were granted a priestly office who had that role of offering sacrifices. Remember, Samuel is one of those one who was committed into the household of Eli and took up a priestly and prophetic role within that household. Remember being the son of Hannah. And, and so here, as he's coming to that sacrifice, he couldn't wait. And as he, the scripture tells us, as he finishes the sacrifice, Samuel arrives. So still on the seventh day. So Samuel didn't lie. <laughs> he just didn't quite meet the morning of Saul's expectation. So Saul discarded the will of God discarded the clear word of God because it seemed like things were delayed. He took things into his own hands to do things his own way. just want to encourage you to think in this way. No matter how long God may be pleased to delay, we do not take things into our own hands. We do not take things, we do not discard the will of God. We do not discard the will of God. We do not say, I'll do it my way rather than his because maybe there's still time anyways before he comes. And so before he comes, I'll go ahead and get things right. No. Uh, further, the, the scriptures even remind us, um, if we look at the psalmist, in, in Psalm 27, he cries out like this. 
I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord. I'm just saying this. Jesus told his disciples to wait and they would receive power. Now we, by the grace of God, have also received that Holy Spirit when we believed. We are sealed with him into the day of redemption. He continues to enable us and empower us to understand the word of God and gift us to serve the body for his glory and the good of his people. But we still wait, don't we? We wait for the coming of the Lord and we don't know exactly when it will be. Further than that, beyond waiting for the coming of the Lord, do we at some times in our life go through trials and problems, difficulties? And those difficulties sometimes have an extended duration. And the psalmist uh, uh, tends to cry out, for example, in Psalm 6 verse 3, My soul is greatly troubled. O Lord, how long? Hey, I've got all these problems, I've got all these difficulties, I've got all these enemies, I've got all these illnesses, I've got all this mess. How long? And what's the answer? He's not given an answer. Does not know how long the difficulty will remain. How long the trial will be. But the reality is this. Even if God does not tell us how long we wait. We wait in obedience. We wait in faithfulness. The, it was Job who said like this, crying out in his suffering, How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? Now, I mean, it's an interesting picture, and it's probably a verse you haven't memorized. But generally speaking, how long does it take you to swallow your spit. I know some of you are thinking about timing it right now. Ready? Go. Done. All right, so you pulled it off in under three seconds. Uh, so when he says that you have not, won't you look away from me long enough, what, he, what he's saying is the, 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 what I'm facing, my, his suffering is just relentless. How long until you give me just a little bit of respite, a little bit of help, a little bit of freedom? Now, remember the patience of Job. And, we, and so, again, there's many in the scriptures who face circumstances in their life where they re were required to wait without details of how long they would have to wait. But with, with them, there are some other details given. They're told to wait. Why wait? Because he said. How long wait? That is not told. Where to wait? Jerusalem. Hmm. Now, it's, it's interesting that, that Jesus is doing that because you do remember that when, uh, when Jesus was uh, crucified and buried and then even resurrected, what was going on? 
Some of you are familiar with the account of the road to, to Emmaus, where some of just Jesus' disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem. They're heading out. They're saying, well, we had hoped that he was the one, but alas, he was killed and Jesus revealed himself to them in the breaking of bread. And then they understood. The, uh, we remember also Peter. What did he do subsequent to the crucifixion of Christ? He goes back to fishing. And so the, 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 now remember, Jesus had, after he appeared to them after seven days, said, go to Galilee and I will meet you there. He ends up saying that, and so he goes to them, and much of the meeting with them is in Galilee, but then he tells them, you go to Jerusalem, and you wait there. Now, again, what I like about this is, is, is you've got this circumstance where they might be saying, why go to Jerusalem and wait there? That doesn't make much sense to us. Here we've got homes... <laughs> Here we've got something to occupy us daily. Here we've got things to do. This plan doesn't make as much sense to me to go and wait in Jerusalem. If we go there, we're going to have to stay with friends or we're going to have to uh, pay for a hotel or rent a, rent a room. Uh, why do that? So again, what, what, I, what I like in what, when we look at this, when he tells them, that they must wait. And we, when he tells them where to wait. What I like about this so far. Is you know what their response is not to challenge him. And not to question him. Well why, why should we wait there? How long are we going to be there? You know I have limited funds to be able to make uh, rent a room. You know, here food is easy for us to get there. We're going to have to, it's, it's just a, a challenge. He tells them where to wait. But see, in all of this, they don't know the details, but we know this, being able to look back on it. God has a perfect purpose. And that is always the case. God has a perfect purpose. Even in the sending of his son, the sending of his son was not random. The scriptures refer to that in the fullness of time. There's a specific point in time that God had intended. And each throughout the scriptures, God is unfolding his purposes in perfect time. Why was he sending them to wait in Jerusalem? Why was there a delay of days? And actually, we know it afterwards because he was going to send forth the spirit of them on the day of Pentecost. And what would be taking place on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem? Men, devout men from all over the place are going to travel, pilgrimage to Jerusalem because they're required to. And so as by sending them to Jerusalem, he is, he, on a specific day, he is gathering a multitude of people all together in that specific place on that day so that when he pours out his spirit upon them and they receive that and they go out then to be his witnesses, it is on an extraordinary day that affords them the opportunity to declare the gospel in such a gathering that 3,000 are added to the church 
that day. You know, and so men can work through, you know, I think it'd be easier to just stay at home. I, you know, I think that uh, how many days? God does not reveal to us everything. You know, for, for some of us, it's like, well, well, what does God want me to do with, with, uh, with my career? What does he want me to do with my studies? What does he want me to do after college? What does he want me to do with this or with that? And, and we have all of these questions to which we don't have answers to. And the tendency can be to spend so much time wanting the answers to those questions. And I'm saying this. The answers to those questions he has not given to us. But he has given us so much that is his will. That is pleasing in his sight. That he desires us to do. How he desires us to live. How he desires us to walk. Uh, it's one of those things that, that, uh, that oft is, 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 a, is a struggle. People will, will, will always say with regard to a particular decision or the future. I, I really want to know God's will for me. Well let me, let me tell you God's will for you. God's will for you is to. Put aside youthful lusts. God's will for you is to pursue righteousness and holiness. God's will is for, you, for you is to love the brethren. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Well, all right, I know that, but I want to know what God's will is for me, you know, today. That is God's will for you today. What you're wanting to know is God's secret will for the practical decisions you have to make, but why are you so less concerned with God's revealed will as to how he would have you live right now? God is the one, even as we sang before, who leads us. His providential hand in the unfolding circumstances of our life, he leads us wherever we go. And so we can make, seek to make wise decisions, make prayerful decisions, but whether this or that, we don't get to cast lots as they did in the days of the Old Testament. Even sometimes people, as, as soon we're going to be in the, in the morning hour looking at Gideon and the putting out of his fleece, and people say, ah, I know how I'm going to figure out God's will for me. I'm going to put out the fleece. Well, Gideon putting out the fleece, did that reveal God's will to Gideon? No, God had already told him, Gideon, do this. Gideon was doubtful, disbelieving, unsure that God would maybe necessarily grant him the power to deliver. So he was really testing God really to prove God's power it, it, he knew what the will of God was putting out the fleece is not something I would recommend I look at that and when it when when he says to put out the fleece like this and put out the fleece I put my hands in my head and say oh Gideon just obey and what you see in Gideon all, all along the way, the same thing as later he's supposed to, with this limited number, now go down. And he's still hesitant to go down. He says, so sneak down and listen to what, what dream God has given some of those soldiers in the camp. Every, way, every place along the way, all that Gideon is doing is hesitating to do what God has clearly revealed to him to do. What I'm simply saying is this. Uh, 
Whatever struggle or challenges you may be going through and however long those will be, I don't know. But while you wait for God to bring that circumstance to an end, while you wait for God to unfold the particular direction that you will go in your life, I know this. God has revealed His will on how you ought to live, how you ought to pray, how you ought to serve. So let us get after it. What are they waiting for? As they're told to wait, why wait? Because he said. Where wait? Jerusalem. But why there? Because he said. Are you catching a theme? (laughs) Wait for what? The promise of the Father that they would receive the Holy Spirit. Well, why do they need to wait for that? Well, I could say, because he said. But more than that, because they need it. (laughs) Because they were fearful. Again, with the scriptures here, if you look at it, it says this in in Luke, uh, Luke 24, verse 49. Jesus says to his disciples, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. So they're waiting for the promise of the Father. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They need an enablement. They need a divine empowerment to fulfill what he is appointing for them to do. In Acts chapter 2 verse 33, which we'll get to soon, as they're preaching the gospel... Uh, Peter is, he says this, Be there, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, of Jesus, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit that he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing. What are they waiting for? The promise of the Father. What are they waiting for also? I want to note this. I would say the performance of the Son. Now why do I say it that way? Well, if you were to look in a few verses, Matthew 3.11, Luke 3.16, and Mark 1.8, you would see these words. Now, this is John the Baptist who's baptizing, and he says these words. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's, it's interesting to note this. So who is baptizing them with water? John. Who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit? Jesus. Which is important to note that Jesus is, it's a promise of the Father. It is performed by the Son, which, mean, which is important to get back. There are groups of people who have this tendency, uh, wanting to experience a, a baptism or, or, or a work of the Spirit of God. What do they say? Holy Spirit, come and baptize us. Well, that's kind of like saying, water, baptize me. Now, there is a difference because water is inanimate and the Spirit is living. But the one who performs the water baptism is an individual. It was John 
and or it's whoever's doing it now, but it's important for us to note this. Jesus is the one who baptizes in or with the Spirit. So, so anyone who's, who's wanting the, the, those special endowments or special enablements, who should they be calling out to? So the, these are just some of the small things that we overlook at times in the scriptures that we don't want to overlook. So, so Christ is the one who baptize, baptizes in or with the Spirit. And in that baptism, they will receive power from on high. Now this power is absolutely necessary for them to fulfill what God has to fulfill. Now note this. In, why do they need this power? John chapter 6, verse 12 and following says this. Jesus says to his, uh, his disciples, his apostles, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you on into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus says, for he will take what is mine, my word and teaching, and declare it to you. So here is Jesus is speaking to, the, to his, those men who will be his apostles, his special witnesses. He says, listen, I have many things to say to you now. But you can't bear it. You don't have the capacity to carry and comprehend it. Uh-oh. Now, we do remember, towards the end of the Gospel of John, he breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, up there in verses 1 to 3, it says, he gave it, having given the many commands through the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was all, has always been necessary to grant some degree of spiritual understanding. But as we come into the new covenant age, the Spirit will not only simply come and empower uh, and enable and assist, but he will indwell. Jesus says to his disciples, and we'll look at this a little bit more down the road, he says that the Spirit is with you, but he will be in you. In the new covenant, the promise of the new covenant, he says, I will put my spirit within you. There is an extraordinary work of God in the new covenant age that is accomplished because of the blood of Christ and the full redemption of God's people where the spirit of God now dwells within us and, and enables us by grace to understand the spiritual things that the spirit declared to the apostles and that the apostles in the word have declared then to God's people. They needed the Spirit to understand the spiritual things of God, to bear it, to grasp it. Luke 9, verse 45, of the, these very men, it says, but they did, Jesus was teaching them, as well as others, he said, but they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them at the time so that they might not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about it. In John 12, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written down and done to him. Once they received power 
and the Spirit of God has as indwelt them. All of these things, all of these teachings, all of these explanations, all of these instructions, it all began to come together and began to make sense to them that was withheld from them before. Because without the Spirit, we cannot understand the things of God. That's what it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. John 20, verse 9 says, For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. And the disciples went back to their homes. Jesus died. They went back to their homes because they did not yet understand the Scriptures. But see, what happened is this. They needed power from on high. Power to understand spiritual truths. Not only power to understand spiritual truths, Here's the reality. Who was their leader? Jesus. And they were his disciples and they were his followers. And, and, and Peter had said, you know what? They may all run away from you, but I will stay and die if necessary. And then the scriptures say, and the others said the same thing. They all said, we're ready to die. But what really happened? When Jesus was crucified, were they out there accusing them? How dare you crucify the Lord of glory? He is the Messiah that the Father sent. Did they do that? No, we know exactly what they did because the scripture tells us what they did. It says in John 12 or, or in John 20, no, 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 yeah, 20 verse 19, on, that, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So what is their condition? They're afraid. You know, and we, we ought to be careful to just look at them and say, weak, because Jesus had actually been brutalized and killed. And they were looking for his followers. Jesus is going to appear to them eight days later. Where now Thomas will be there with him. And again he comes to a locked room. Okay. So, the, so the, their early experience is what? Hide. And then Jesus says, and I will meet you in Galilee. And they run. But now he's telling them, go back to Jerusalem. Oh, boy. So they go back, and they're gathering. They're filled with fear. They're filled with uncertainty. But then what happens? They remember the power of the grace of God. And he gives them boldness that they would speak. They were sitting there. We all even know this. They were sitting there again keeping to themselves. And then as the Spirit is poured out upon them and comes upon them. And we're going to see this in the next chapter. And they receive that baptism and filling of the Spirit. What do they do? From hiding in little quiet prayer rooms, they go out into the public square. And they begin proclaiming the wonders and excellencies of God in all the languages of those people who are gathered there. And then Peter is going to stand up, filled with the Spirit, emboldened by the work of God, and tell them, you killed 
by the hands of lawless men. You murdered, you crucified the Son of God, but he rose and is alive. I mean, this bold, from, from hiding and fearful and locked and, and, and not really understanding. Now, the Spirit is given that they understand the purposes of God. They understand the Word of God. And they're emboldened to go out and declare it even at the peril of their lives. But they do it. And so we understand why they had to wait now, further than that, to really to see the transition from this, they had to wait. But the second thing that, we, that I wanted to draw your attention to is they were not only to wait, but they were to be witnesses. They were wait because it was the purpose of God that they would be his witnesses. It says it right there. Why are they waiting for the power from on high? They're waiting for that power so that they... Verse 8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So why, they needed this empowerment to be his witnesses. Why? Because they would make known what the Old Testament scriptures meant as they speak of and point to Christ. Because they will need the boldness and enablement of the Spirit to go out. Because I guess the simple question is this. They will be witnesses, but Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. So what are they, who are they witnesses of and to? Jesus Christ. It's very important that we understand this. Christ is, is, is the fullest revelation of God that men could see. As it tells us in Hebrews, he is the exact representation of the Father. Jesus would say to his disciples who are saying, show us the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is that he is the one that, that they are to witness. They have spent their time with him. They have seen his life. And I love the thought of thinking back on this. Because we, I think I'm, we, we talked about this recently. Unlike most of our, our normal circumstances today. If somebody goes for classes. How many of you go for classes or ever did go for classes with your teacher, and then you ate your meals with the teacher, and then you slept in the same place as your teacher, and you got up in the same place as your teacher, you traveled wherever your teacher traveled. And we generally don't do that, and I'm not encouraging that. You know, give them some space. But the reality is this, with Jesus, they saw him from morning to night. They saw him in the seasons where he was tired and weary. They saw him in the times that he was hungry. They saw him 
in all circumstances. They saw him in times where, where people were gathering with, with much uh, appreciation and awe. They saw him in times where people were coming against him with false accusations and even accusing him to be a servant of Beelzebub. They saw Jesus in every circumstance. And what did they see? As the scriptures remind us, he was tempted, tempted in all ways as we are but without sin. They saw perfection. Even as we recently had looked, you know, when Jesus is ministering and, and, and giving the gospel to that, that uh, Samaritan woman who has come out to the well, and then the gospel to all those other Samaritans, why was Jesus there, it says? He was famished, and so they went in to get food. So in Jesus' weariness, in Jesus' weakness, what is he still doing? doing the work of his father and then he tells his disciples when they come I've got, I have food to eat that you know not of my food is to do the will of him who sent me Jesus all this reminded even in his childhood at 12 years old they, his parents come back to Jerusalem his earthly parents and say where were you what have you done did you not know I have to be about the work of my father you can see that Jesus in every circumstance full of faith and full of faithfulness. Wow. And they would be witnesses of that. They would be witnesses of, uh, not just in the way that we are, but witnesses of what they had seen and heard. When they're told in Acts chapter 4, no longer to speak of Christ, no longer to teach of Christ, and they're threatened in that regard. In Acts 4.20 it says this, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I mean, that's the, that's the faith that we stand on. That's the, that's the truth and the gospel and the revelation of God that we hold to. It's not, it's not just a religion. It's not just, one, it's not just a group of people's opinions. And there's so many different religions in the world. This is the truth testified truth by eyewitnesses who have seen these things and that men might not uh, doubt or deny. Remember, we had seen he showed himself alive through 40 days by many proofs. We looked last week at how many he had showed himself to and at one time more than 500 people he revealed himself to, it tells us in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 8. So, you just, uh, so that we would understand this. Are there lots of claims in the world for what is truth? Lots of claims in the world for, for uh, how we can be saved and how we can... There's all kinds of competing claims in this world. And so you will meet people say, well, how do we know which one's true? How do we know which religion is right? How do we know? Yeah. We don't just choose one man's opinion over another opinion. Opinion. We have, by the grace of God, the testimony of eyewitnesses where God said, look at this. This has never happened before. And I'm going to prove it. Remember, three times Jesus, prior to going to Jerusalem, tells his disciples this. Listen, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested, beaten, mocked, spit upon, crucified, and then I will rise again on the third day. And what's amazing is the scriptures say, 
The disciples did not understand what he was saying. It's pretty clear, but it's also pretty impossible. Uh, I wonder what the secret spiritual meaning is in what Jesus is saying, because he can't mean what he's really saying, because who can do that? Well, Jesus says, uh, I'm not like anyone else. I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again. What? Who's ever done that before? No man has ever done it before. Jesus proved that he had the power to do that in the life of Lazarus. But even more astoundingly, because he was still alive when he called Lazarus forth from the grave, how could he who himself has already died and gone to the grave come back again? And what the disciples are testifying, the apostles are testifying is, he did this. This is not a game. This is not a story. This is not, not, not just a, a religion. This is real truth. What the scriptures give us, it is authentic. I love the way that John says it in 1 John uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes and looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And this is not just a story. We, the Son of God really came. We heard Him teaching. We traveled with Him. He died. He rose again. We touched Him with our hands. We sat and ate with Him. All of this is true. Acts 2.32 says this, And Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. They would be witnesses. They would be witnesses of Christ. And I want us to remember that because we can get slightly distracted. Even good and godly people, even the church with the best of intentions can get distracted. And we can make, and, I'm not, and I want to be careful about this. We can make the, prior, the passion or priority of our gospel salvation. Now, is salvation glorious? Yes. But we're not merely proclaiming salvation. We're proclaiming salvation through Christ. Because there's a host of people throughout the world who will be happy for salvation, forgiveness of sin, eternal blessings in heaven. Sure, I want that. We're not saying, we're not just proclaiming a salvation. We're pro proclaiming he who is our salvation, Jesus Christ. There is no gospel where the Savior is not at the center. Salvation results because Jesus is our Savior. So let us remember that they're witnesses not only of the way of salvation, but they're my witnesses. Now, witnesses to where? Verse 8. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. You will be my witnesses absolutely worldwide. Well, what's the point in that? In all these different countries, they already have their own religions. They already have their own practices. Yeah, they do. But there is not salvation in any other name that's given among men. 
There is no hope apart from the name of Christ. And so this gospel, this witness, this message, the declaration of this Jesus must go. And it begins with where you are now. As God is going to be for the Feast of Weeks, gathering together a multitude there. And then they're to go out and further and further. And that message is to continue to go every place. Well, why should we go? If we, if we go and we preach the gospel in this place, then they'll turn away from their religion and maybe they'll abandon their rich culture that they've had for many, many years. Uh, you hear those things in the world today, don't you? Yeah, their rich culture that leads to destruction. <laughs> you know, the, the practices of men and patterns of men that have de- developed because of their depravity is not to be retained. We declare Christ and he delivers from their sins. And there is a sense in which We are no longer of this world because he has separated us from this world. If we were of the world, the world would love us. But we are no longer of this world, even as Jesus says, even as I am not of this world. And that's the reality. He pulls us out where we don't fit. So it's not only the rich cultures. I mean, look at at the, the, the mainstream culture that's taking place in America today. We don't look at, at, at where the culture's going. We listen to what Christ has declared. And we tell people, follow Christ. Follow Christ. Yeah, but that's old-fashioned. No, it's not old-fashioned. I mean, uh, again, we, we look at that. And, and the day and age in which we live, there's so many things going on. We've talked about this before, how uh, people come out and they say, oh, you know, the, the, these Christians, they, get, they can be just so old-fashioned, so, you know, so archaic in their thinking. You know, they, they don't understand the, the, modern con, the modern practice of gender fluid, and they don't understand the modern practices, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, of uh, homosexuality and all these modern... Those aren't modern practices! Have you not read the scripture? What was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah? Sodom and Gomorrah is before the days of Christ. It's all the way back in the days of Abraham. That that sin has been taking place and taking root in various compromised cultures for eons which is a word we don't use often to just make it seem even older. Forever. So the, 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 we're old-fashioned. Well, no, no, no. You're old-fashioned. Your sin is so old-fashioned. Get a new sin. But you can't. You can't get a new sin because they're all old-fashioned. Men have been sinning out of their hearts since the beginning of time, and its expressions have not ultimately changed. And it's so sad that they won't realize that this, these kinds of corruption that God has constantly condemned for ages and centuries, he still continues to condemn. And they look at us as when we condemn it and say, you old-fashioned. You old-fashioned. You know, it's not a matter, and again, in the end, it's not a matter, well, who's the most old-fashioned? Who cares? What is pleasing to God? What is the truth in Christ? We will be witnesses. Thirdly, and lastly, and we'll, we'll zip through this one, I would say watch. 
they watched him go. It tells us in verse 9, and when he had said these things, they were looking on and he was lifted up and taken out of their sight. They watched him go. And two thoughts I want to just share in your mind with this. One, they, they were physical observers and watched him rise. They're told in the same way that they watched him go, he will also come. Now, in our minds, it's not, it's not hard to conceive. We've seen these kind of things where uh, because of modern uh, abilities with special effects, you, you, you see shows where somebody will fly up or somebody will rise up. These dear men had never seen movies with special effects before. All right. So, so, so we who are a little bit desensitized to it, as they're standing there, and the Jesus suddenly begins to rise, and not like these these fake magician shows where they where they only rise a certain uh, a certain height, you know, and and maybe hover there a little bit, and it looks like they're dangling by something, and then eventually come down. Jesus went up and up and up and into the cloud, and out of sight, and into the heaven of heavens. And he will come again just like that. So they watched him go. We are watching for his return. Even the scripture actually says uh, of the blessing that is for those who are eagerly awaiting his appearing. But more than that, I want to, with the idea of watch, I want to throw in this. They watched him go. We are watching for his return. And the time in between is saturated with watchfulness. Now, watchfulness takes place, I would say, in something like this. I mean, 1 Peter 5, 8 says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone who may devour. Resist him firm in your faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, be watchful, stand firm in your faith, act like men, be strong. Uh, there's the, in Matthew 25, you have the parable of the ten bridesmaids, right? And there were five who were prepared and who were ready and who were watchful when the groom came. And there were five who were not ready and who were not watchful. Some were continued wise, were, were, were described as wise, and some were described as foolish. We are to be those who are patient, watchful, trusting and looking. We want to be those who love his appearing. So three main thoughts that we've looked at. Wait. Why wait? Because he said, how long? However long he is pleased. We let the secret things belong to him and we're faithful with the things that he's revealed. Where wait? Jerusalem, because he has a perfect purpose, because he is going to begin establishing and building his church and kingdom. Wait for what? The promise of the Father, the performance of the Son, the power of the Spirit. And they will become what? Witnesses. They will be witnesses of what? Or who? Of Christ. And the revelation of God that is in him, the salvation and forgiveness is in him. They will be witnesses of, of his life, his words, and his work. Lastly, they, and they will be witnesses worldwide. They're, lastly, we saw they watch. They watched him go. Indeed, some will remain here and they will watch him return. And until then, we live lives of watchfulness, preparedness diligence and faithfulness.
Let's pray and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.